Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning in to episode 113 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. We return to a box set and a record filled with music from my dad's favorite trumpet player, and we are going to hear him sing on every song. It comes from the first of 12 box sets in the Franklin Mint collection, the greatest jazz recordings of all time. And this musician has the first two records all to himself. So, get ready to hear the man once billed as the world's greatest trumpet player by his wife in volume 113, Louis V. Jazz Masterpiece, Part 2.
It's Louis Armstrong and his orchestra with Dusky Stevedore, written by J.C. Johnson. Dusky Stevedore has lyrics by Andy Razov that must have reminded Louis of the days when he worked as a longshoreman in New Orleans. It was recorded with the big band he led between his first visits to Europe in 1932 and from August 1933 through December 1934. The sidemen included the Johnson brothers, tenor saxophonist Bud and trombonist Keg, both of whom take solos. Also on hand is drummer Sid Catlett, who was to become one of Louis's favorites. This is a driving performance, from the brilliant, unaccompanied opening trumpet cadenza to the final high note. The absolute rhythmic freedom and assurance of Louis's playing and singing are remarkable, even for him. The band also included Zilner Randolph and Ellis Whitlock on trumpets, Scoville Brown and George Oldham on clarinet and alto sax, Charlie Beal on piano, Mike McKendrick on banjo, Bill Oldham on brass bass, and it was released on the Victor label, recorded April 24, 1933. Yes, one of the reasons I like the Franklin Mint Collection is because of the great research they did and made available in a booklet for each box set. And as usual, I will use them to give more details about each tune I have chosen. Okay, why this record for this episode? I, too have been a big fan of Armstrong's for as long as I can remember. I'm sure my dad had just a little to do with that. Yes, most of us have heard his recording of What a Wonderful World, and even though he was one of the greatest and most influential musicians ever, his influence wasn't just for horn players. His singing also caught attention for its unique phrasing and style especially when he starts scatting. So it was interesting to hear every single song on this album featured Louis's voice as well as his trumpet. And there's some pretty good musicians backing him up as well. Plus, this collection is extra special because it was one that my dad and I shared the financial responsibility for collecting. It was considered expensive in the early 1980s. Up next... Swing That Music was also the title of Louis's first biography, co-authored with Horace Gerlach, who wrote the lyrics to Louis's Melody, a tune on uh, record one of this set. It was the first book about a jazz musician. The song, one of many composed by Louis, has remained in the jazz repertory, though it is seldom played as fast as Louis takes it here. His four choruses, following an excellent one by the sax section, are among his most amazing displays of stamina and drive and show that in 1936 he was still in a class by himself when it came to trumpet pyrotechnics. Heart gives a chill, I feel such a thrill, my feet won't keep still when they swing that music. Rhythm like that puts me in a trance, or you can't blame me for wanting to dance. From what I understand, it must be just grand to play in a band. When they swing that music, I'm just happy as can be when they swing that music for me.
Louis and his orchestra with Swing That Music, written by Armstrong, with Leonard Davis, Gus Aiken, and Louis Bacon on trumpet, Leo Snub Mosley and Jimmy Archie on trombone, Henry Jones and Charlie Holmes on alto sax, Benji Madison and Greeley Walton on tenor sax, Louis Russell on piano, and he was also the arranger, Lee Blair on guitar, Pops Foster on string bass, and Paul Bardarin on drums. It was released on the DECA record label and recorded May 18th, 1936. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Louis Armstrong, Roy Eldridge, Jazz Masterpieces. It's on the Franklin Mint Record Society label, Jazz 001, Records 1, 2, 3, 4. It's the Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time, Institute of Jazz Studies Official Archive Collection Series. It's a four-vinyl LP compilation, red vinyl, red box set, released in 1982. Its genre is jazz, and its style is swing. As usual for a Franklin Mint record, we will hear eight of the 12 songs from record two, which is sides three and four. Now, as usual, the liner notes are extensive, so I just want to touch on a couple of very special paragraphs. Now, this is shortly after we read about King Oliver calling Louis to Chicago to join his band in 1922. In the band was a pianist, Lillian Garden. Two years Louis Sr., bright, lively, and college-educated. Lil fell in love with the young trumpeter in spite of his provincial dress, speech, and manners. They were married, and Lil began to instill confidence in Louis and to pry him loose from Oliver's influence musically and psychologically. She discovered that Louis, when he whistled, expressed musical ideas far beyond what he dared to play on his horn. She coaxed him into trying them out. In the fall of 1924, Louis accepted an offer from Fletcher Henderson, leader of New York City's most successful black dance band, to join him at the Roseland Ballroom on Broadway. Though Louis had shed some of his southern manners while in Chicago, he still seemed like a bumpkin to Henderson's sophisticated musicians. But only until he put his trumpet to his lips. After that, they began to copy not only his musical ideas, but also his mannerisms of speech and movement. During his stay of little more than a year with Henderson, Louis transformed the band. It had been clever, but rhythmically stiff and musically rather barren. Louis changed it to the most dynamic large jazz ensemble he had heard playing, mostly arranged music. Incidentally, he also liberated the imagination of another star to be, tenor saxophonist Coleman Hawkins, who has his own section of this collection, and turned most of the city's young musicians on their ears. Lil sent for him to join her band. She had grown lonesome for him in Chicago and also realized that Henderson had been confining to him. Louis balked at first when he saw the banner she had prepared for his opening night, which read, The World's Greatest Trumpeter, Louis Armstrong. But she prevailed and Louis didn't object when she obtained a recording contract with the OK label, the leading company recording black music. Louis would record as a leader for the first time. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. $20 for the highest, $8.94 for the lowest, for a $14.64 average and $14.46 median. It was last sold on October 2nd, 2022 for a penny under of that highest price. I found a copy on eBay for $27.99 and one on Amazon for 
$165. Now, there were several on other sites in the in the $100 range. Now, my dad's album is kind of crackly in parts, but quiet in others. It was played a ton by both him and me, especially this box set and especially the first two records in this set. The red vinyl still looks pretty good, though, so I will call it in fair condition. The red box and the heavy plastic sleeves uh, that each record comes in does really keep it in good condition. That box is still in very good condition as well. And so is the booklet that comes with it, um, although it's starting to get a little worn as I use it for research for the show. I think I have undervalued this set the first two times we featured music from this box set. So I think I'm going to up that value of my dad's box set to $30. Now here's a rip-roaring version of this song. Alexander's Ragtime Band, the Irving Berlin classic, gets an exceptionally good arrangement by Chappie Willett, and the band rises to the occasion. Louis' vocal is almost a definition of swinging, as is his leading of the brass section. The trumpet solo is not a paraphrase of the melody, but its spontaneous creation as modern as anything played in 1937 or today.
It's Louie and his orchestra with Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin. Shelton Hemphill, Henry Red Allen, and Louis Bacon on trumpet. George Matthews, George Washington, and J.C. Higginbotham on trombone. Pete Clark and Charlie Holmes on alto sax. Albert Nicholas on clarinet and tenor sax. Bingle Madison on tenor sax. Louis Russell on piano. Lee Blair on guitar. Pops Foster on string bass. Paul Barbarian on drums. Chappie Willett is the arranger. And it was released on Decca and recorded July 7, 1937. Okay, let's roll right into some rude banter between Louie and uh, Louie. You Rascal You shows better than any other recorded performance that Louie was not deaf to the new trends in jazz. He and Louie Jordan make a perfect team. Too bad they never recorded together again. And Jordan's swinging little band obviously inspires Louie with its modern beat. After some lively vocal banter with Jordan, they take turns backing each other instrumentally. Louis responds to Jordan's blow him out with a startling, fresh, and vibrant trumpet flight. His high notes are as strong as ever. Amazingly, this marvelous recasting of an Armstrong classic has never been issued on a long-playing record before.
Armstrong with Louis Jordan and his Timpani 5 with You Rascal You, written by Sam Theard in 1929 and legally titled I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, with Aaron Isenhall on trumpet, Jordan on alto sax and vocal, Josh Jackson on tenor sax, Bill Doggett on piano, Bill Jennings on guitar, Bob Bushnell on string bass, and Joe Morris on drums. It was released on Decca Records and recorded August 23, 1950. Okay, let's learn a little more about this famous trumpet player. Now, we heard a pretty extensive bio in episode 10 of this show, so I'll share a few things you may not know about Satchmo. This comes from a History.com story, Nine Things You Didn't Know About Louis Armstrong, written by Evan Andrews, originally published August, 20, uh, August 4th, 2016, and updated October 17th, 2022, and I'll drop the link in my show's liner notes. Now, you've already heard a couple on this show and previously, so you won't get all nine from this article. A Jewish immigrant family helped him buy his first horn. Armstrong was born on August 4, 1901 into a poverty-ridden section of New Orleans nicknamed the Battlefield. His father abandoned the family when Armstrong was a child, and his teenaged mother was often forced to resort to prostitution to make ends meet. Young Louis spent much of his boyhood in the care of his grandmother, but he also found a second home among the Karnofskys, a local Lithuanian Jewish family who hired him to do odd jobs for their peddling business. The jazz man would later write that the Karnofskys treated him as though he were their own child, often giving him food and even loaning him money to buy his first instrument, a $5 cornet. He wouldn't begin playing the trumpet until 1926. As a sign of his gratitude to his Jewish benefactors, Armstrong later took to wearing a Star of David pendant around his neck. Armstrong was one of the first celebrities to be arrested for drug possession. Armstrong made no secret of his fondness for marijuana, which he described as a thousand times better than whiskey. In 1930, when the drug was still not widely known, he and drummer Vic Burton were arrested after police caught them smoking a joint outside the Cotton Club in California. Armstrong served nine days in jail for the bust, but despite his brush with the law, he continued using marijuana regularly for the rest of his life. Quote, it makes you forget all the bad things that happened to a Negro, unquote, he once said. He served as a musical ambassador for the U.S. State Department. During the height of the Cold War in the, late, in the late 1950s, the U.S. State Department developed a program to send jazz musicians and other entertainers on goodwill tours to improve America's image overseas. Armstrong was already known as Ambassador Satch for his concerts in far-flung corners of the globe, but in 1960, he became an official cultural diplomat after he took off on a three-month State Department-sponsored trip across Africa. The trumpeter and his band, the All-Stars, proceeded to take the continent by storm. In Accra, Ghana, 100,000 natives went into a frenzied demonstration when he started to blow his horn, the New York Times later wrote. And in Leopoldville, tribesmen painted themselves ochre and violet and carried him into the city stadium on a canvas throne. One of the most remarkable signs of Armstrong's popularity came during a stopover in the Congo's Katanga province, where the two sides in a secession crisis called a one-day truce so they could watch him play. He would later joke that he had stopped a civil war. At the age of 62, Armstrong surpassed the Beatles at the top of the pop charts. In late 1963, Armstrong and his All-Stars recorded the title track for an upcoming musical called Hello, Dolly!, 
The trumpeter didn't expect much from the tune, but when the show debuted on Broadway the following year, it became a runaway hit. By May, Hello Dolly had soared to the top of the charts, displacing two songs by the Beatles, who were then at the height of their popularity. At age 62, Armstrong became the oldest musician in American history to have a number one song. The song What a Wonderful World was not a hit during his lifetime. Armstrong is widely remembered for his rosy ballad What a Wonderful World, which he recorded in 1967, just four years before his death. But while the song performed well overseas, it was not well promoted in the United States and flopped upon its initial release. According to Armstrong biographer Terry Teachout, What a Wonderful World didn't make a comeback until 1987 when it was included in the soundtrack of the Robin Williams film Good Morning Vietnam. It was then reissued and shot to number 33 on the Billboard charts, and since then, it's become one of Armstrong's signature tunes. Okay, back to music. And you might be more familiar with Billie Holiday's version of this song. Solitude finds Louis at the helm of what had been Louis Russell's band which he was the front for several years. Pianist arranger Russell, bassist Pops Foster, and drummer Paul Barberin uh, were all old friends from New Orleans, giving Louis the kind of steady beat he liked. Duke Ellington's famous composition inspires Louis, both vocally and instrumentally. This rare third take has never before been issued commercially, though it is as good as, if not better than, the other two made that same day. Thank you. 
Armstrong and his orchestra with Solitude, written by Duke Ellington. With the same personnel as Swing That Music, except Harry White is on trombone and not Leo Snub Mosley. It was a Decca record label, Test Pressing. It was recorded on December 12, 1935. Next up is a tune that also features a popular singing group. Darling Nellie Gray displays a much more sober side of Louis' genius, backed only by the four Mills brothers and an acoustic guitar. He plays beautifully restrained, melodic trumpet, while his vocal contribution has the feeling of a sermon kept by charming scat cadenza. Oh, my poor Nellie Gray, they have taken you away, and I'll never see my darling anymore. I am sitting by the river, and I'm weeping all the day, for you're gone from the old Kentucky shore. Oh, my poor Nellie Gray. And taken you away And I'll never see my darling anymore I am sitting by the river And I'm weeping all the day For you gone from the old Kentucky shore this my poor Nellie Gray they have taken you away and I never see my baby anymore oh baby didn't do the I am sitting here by the river and I'm all in a shiver for you've gone from old Kentucky so oh baby didn't do the Darling Nellie Gray from Louis Armstrong and the Mills Brothers. Darling Nellie Gray is a 19th century anti-slavery ballad written and composed by Benjamin Hanby in 1856. Accompanying them was John Mills on guitar. Time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with stories about Armstrong's mouth. The nickname Satchmo, or Satch, is short for Satchel Mouth, describing his embouchure 
or the way he applied his mouth to the mouthpiece. In 1932, the Melody Maker magazine editor Percy Brooks greeted Armstrong in London with, Hello, Satchmo, shortening satchel mouth, some say unintentionally, and it stuck. Early on, he was also known as Dipper Mouth. This is a reference to the propensity he had for refreshing himself with the dipper ladle from a bucket of sugar water, which was always present on stage with Joe Oliver's band in Chicago in the early 1920s. But he had other issues with his mouth. Thanks to a relentless touring schedule and his penchant for hitting high C's on the trumpet, Armstrong spent much of his career battling severe lip damage. He played with such force that he often split his lip wide open, and he suffered from painful scar tissue that a fellow musician once said made his lips look as hard as a piece of wood. Armstrong treated his lip calluses with a special salve or even removed them himself using a razor blade. But as years passed, he began struggling to hit his signature high notes. The trumpeter was so famously hard on his chops, as he called them, that a certain type of lip condition is now commonly known as Satchmo's syndrome. The damage to his embouchure from his high-pressure approach to playing is acutely visible in many pictures of Louis from the mid-20s. It also led to his emphasizing his singing career because at certain periods he was unable to play. This did not stop Louis, though, because after setting his trumpet aside for a while, he amended his playing style and continued his trumpet career. Friends and fellow musicians usually called him Pops, which is also how Armstrong usually addressed his friends and fellow musicians, except for Pops Foster, who Armstrong always called George. <laughs> Up next, Avalon, vintage 1960, is one of the happy results of an unpromising combination. Louis and the then hugely successful Dukes of Dixieland. The Dukes usually featured a rather brash and superficial brand of traditional jazz dressed up in the latest hi-fi sonics, but here proved themselves more musical than suspected. Trumpeter Frank Assunto especially is finely attuned to Louis as they trade the lead in the opening and closing ensembles. Frank leads off, but you can tell by now what Louis sounds like. Louis's vocal again strikes a personal note. This time, it's a tribute to his wife, Lucille. He is in marvelous form here, and his big-as-ever sound on the trumpet is very well captured. Even the clanking banjo and the huffing euphonium don't get in his way as he unfolds two superb solo choruses. Thank you. 
Avalon from Louis Armstrong and the Dukes of Dixieland. 
Avalon is a 1920 popular song written by Al Jolson, Buddy De Silva, and Vincent Rose referencing Avalon, California. With Armstrong and Asunto on trumpet was Fred Asunto on trombone, Jerry Fuller on clarinet, Stan Mendelssohn on piano, Jack Asunto on banjo, Rick Madison on brass bass, and Owen Mahoney on drums. It was released on the Audio Fidelity label and recorded May 24, 1960. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Listening to some of this music that goes back 100 years or more and knowing how influential the musician leading it would become is really special. Jazz is the history of our country, and many jazz musicians fought for civil liberties. Now, I mentioned in a previous episode that Harry Belafonte has a big or was a big financial contributor to Martin Luther King Jr. and his family. It's not as well known that Satchmo also contributed heavily to MLK and his cause. Plus, just listening to this music, you can tell how much fun they were having recording it. Okay, let's finish up. Someday, Sweetheart, composed in 1919, a tune that Louis had played with King Oliver but never before recorded is our valedictory. It stems from the soundtrack of the last film in which he had a prominent role, A Man Called Adam. It would be foolish to claim that time had not taken its toll both on Louis's voice and horn. After all, he was 65 now. But there is still a commanding presence here, vocally and instrumentally. The energy and vitality are still intact, as indeed they would remain until the very end. To Louis, making music was, quote, my living and my life, unquote, and he never gave it less than is all.
shall you reap, dear? And what you reap will make you weep someday, sweetheart. As you reap will make you weep someday, sweetheart. Louis Armstrong and the All-Stars, Someday Sweetheart. Written by Los Angeles-based musicians John and Reb Spikes, it was also performed by Tyree Glenn on trombone, Buster Bailey on clarinet, Billy Kyle on piano, John Brown on string bass, and Joe Jones on drums. It was released on Reprise Records and recorded in the fall of 1965. And there you have selections from record two of the Franklin Mint Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time. So thanks for tuning into Volume 113, Louie, The Jazz Masterpiece Part 2, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 114, Peggy at Basin Street East. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) 